0: I think, as I understand it, there will also be a our church van going leaving from the church parking lot around 6 o'clock for those who would like to go to the Riversiders event tonight. So if you would like uh, to be on that van, please be here at 6 o'clock, and they will take you and bring you back. Also, uh, last Sunday after church, Norma Hooker fell accidentally in the uh, uh, Bittenger Hall and cracked a hip, and she's been in uh, the hospital, at Baptist Hospital, since then, she had a hip replacement or some work done. She has now been released to River Garden for rehabilitation. However, Floyd, her husband of 92 years, well, he's 92 years old. They haven't been married 92 years, <laughs> uh, was discovered that he has some internal bleeding. And he's now in Baptist as they try to determine what that's about. Paul is now here. He came up from Austin yesterday, so keep that family, the hookers, in your prayers. And finally, I would like to also thank our choirs for this February month of spirituals. Uh, During our Black History Month, as you know, we try to celebrate that tradition through the singing of spirituals, Uh, not that we are in complete solidarity. I mean, look at us. We're, We're white, mostly. We're So far from understanding what the slavery of those people is all about, it's hard for us to connect, yet in some small way, we sing these spirituals as a way of solidarity for that really, really tragic and sinful time in our world. So thank you, choirs, for that wonderful blessing that you provide us. This morning's uh, text really can't be understood apart from its context, which is true for all the texts that we preach, uh, this one especially. Uh, It comes to us in the 13th chapter of Luke. Before this, uh, Jesus, knowing that he must go to Jerusalem already, and knowing that he will probably be crucified there, nevertheless continues his teaching as he follows that road toward Jerusalem. And as he goes, people come to ask him, what must uh, we do to be saved or how many will be saved? And remember, Jesus came initially to try to reform the temple, the institution of the temple or the church, as we would call it, into a way of opening itself up to a much larger uh, uh, welcoming. Rather than just the righteous or the pious, Jesus understood that the kingdom of God was meant for a much larger audience. And so when that person asked him that question, Jesus said, well, the way is narrow. It's not the way of the priest and the institution. It's the narrow way of grace. And that the last will be first. And if you think you're the first, you're going to be the last. And at that point, he then says, they will come from east and west and north and south and sit at the kingdom of God, which is to say, it's this broad sweep of hospitality and welcoming. Now with that... The text begins in the 31st verse. At that same hour some Pharisees came to and said to him, "Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you." He said to them, "Go and tell that fox for me, listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow and the next day I must be on my way because it is impossible For a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I've been reading a fascinating book lately called Thinking Fast and Slow, written by a man named Daniel Kahneman. He has won the Nobel Prize in economics, but what's surprising is that he's not an economist, he's a psychologist. No psychologist has ever won the Nobel Prize until he did. And so when he speaks, he has an audience that wants to listen. He, in his book, makes uh, the point that basically the human mind is divided into two parts. Part one, And part two, part one, he calls the fast thinking part. It's that uh, intuitive uh, part of us, that impulsive emotional snap judgment part of us that he says is much like an elephant. It sort of wants to go where it wants to go and it goes there if it wants to. It's humongous. It controls a lot of life. The second part he calls the reasonable or rational part, system two, it's the slow thinking part, it's more the frontal lobe part, and he classifies that as the rider on the elephant. From time to time the rider can direct the elephant, but still the elephant has its own will. Now, as an example of these two parts of us, he tells the story about when he was in Israel as an educator. Uh, working for the education department. He had a bright idea of being able to teach high school students about these two parts in us, and hopefully helping them learn to make slower, more rational decisions rather than just the intuitive or impulsive or snap judgment decision. And so we gathered together a bunch of educators, well-known educators, as well as some psychologists, uh, to write a book and to put together a curriculum to teach these high schoolers. And he also invited Seymour Fox, who was the Dean of Hebrew University School of Education, who was an expert in putting together curriculum for educators. They began meeting on Fridays. They met once a week for a year. They completed an outline. They'd finished their syllabus and even their first chapter. And Kahneman had this bright idea to ask everybody to write down on a slip of paper at one meeting, how long do you think it's going to take for us to finish our job? All the numbers came in and when they added them up, they averaged out to two years. The lowest being a year and a half, the highest being two and a half years. Well, he then had the bright idea of turning to Seymour, and asked if he could think of other teams that was like, that were like theirs uh, and how long it had taken them to do this work. And when asked, Seymour fell embarrassingly quiet, and he blushed and said, you know, I never realized it before, but not all the teams finished. In fact, now that I think of it, 40% didn't finish their work. Well, of those who finished, uh, Daniel asked Seymour, how long did it take them? Well, now that I think about it, uh, it took them about seven years. No more than ten, about seven. Well, how good were they, Daniel asked, compared to us? Well, I'd say we are a little below average. Not far, but below average. This was a complete surprise to the whole team sitting around the table Seymour's initial estimate, too, was in the two-year range and so Seymour was surprised by his rational response as much as the rest of them. Now the facts were before them. They all knew that 40% of the teams would fail in the project, that the average would be at seven years, but the team refused to, re- to acknowledge the facts and what they knew. And it seemed unreal to them because they had worked so hard and done so well the first year. The point, he says, is that this is a classic example of system one thinking, controlling the meeting, when they should have been able to slow down and let the rational facts speak and come up to the different conclusion, that it was going to take a whole lot longer and be much harder than they first thought. But they didn't emotionally want to face that for fear it would let them down. No one was willing to invest another six or seven years in the project, that was clear. No one would have invested that if the chances were 40% of failure, but they wouldn't let themselves go there. After a few moments, the team got back to work, gathered themselves together as if nothing happened. The book was eventually completed in eight years after Kahneman had moved away, as well as several other people on the team, and in fact, after the end of the book, uh, the energy behind the book had been uh, used up. Ultimately, the book was never even used. Kahneman said this was the most instructive experience in his life. He called it irrational, not exuberance, but that's part of it, irrational optimism and perseverance. Irrational in the folly that his team displayed in not abandoning the project, which is what they should have done. For faced with the choice, they gave up rationality rather than the emotional investment they already had. And not only did the team do it, but so did Seymour, which was a complete surprise because Seymour had all the statistics at hand. He, too, was completely surprised by his emotional irrationality. But the longer Caneman thought about it, the more he discovered that it was really his fault. For he was the team leader. A team gathered together to write a book about how the rational mind should outweigh the irrational mind. Yet in the very point of having to make a decision, his team, led by himself, gave in to the irrational decision. Now this rather long introduction to this morning's passage about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem is to ask you this question. Faced with the reality before him, his crucifixion, was Jesus continuing on his journey toward Jerusalem an irrational, overly optimistic perseverance, like Kahneman's group? Was he not willing to deal with the facts and just emotionally was so caught up in the process that he continued to be driven by System 1 thinking? No. Initially, Luke makes clear that Jesus' ministry was one of reform and reconciliation. If you go back and look at Luke, the first sermon out of Jesus' mouth is the sermon to the temple where he says, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor and release of captives and to set the oppressed free. Jesus saw his mission as reforming the temple, the institution of the church that was clearly infocused, clearly about only the Righteous as being included. Jesus hoped that he could reverse the pecking order that included everybody into the kingdom of God, and he'd come to bring good news to those who never thought themselves part of it. But later, the Gospel of Luke wants us to know that Jesus became well aware that his mission was failing. In the ninth chapter in Luke, Jesus announces that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected and killed. And on the third day, rise again. Three times, Jesus would make this prediction. So why didn't he quit? His original mission was clearly doomed. Was he just so caught up in it? I want to say to you that Jesus was so reasonably and rationally based about his journey to Jerusalem that it would completely undermine our understanding of the power of what reasonable choice is all about. He knew his life would end tragically. I mean, emotionally, no one would want to do that. Yet he continued his journey a journey that had lament in it when he lifted up these words, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have. How I would have, past tense. There was no chance of hope, he was clear. Yet he continued. Why would he continue a mission with no chance of success? Maybe because he discovered that his mission was radically different than he first thought. Maybe it was not about success at all, but about service. Maybe he discovered that his mission was not about the bottom line or the product that he produced, but instead a complete commitment to God's will, regardless of the outcome, a commitment that would call him to suffer. Friends, the only mission I know that works this way is love. Love continues the journey regardless of the outcome. You do not stop loving someone because they have been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Martin Luther King did not stop serving the way of justice because he intuitively understood that his time was near. Isn't that what love is in the end? A full commitment to someone or something, even though the outcome may be at question. Like a parent who continues to love a child, who continues to use or abuse or walk away or run away or Disobey, you don't give up on them. No matter how many Al Anon meetings you go to, you learn to disconnect. You're told over and over emotionally you must disconnect, and you do. And next thing you know, you can't. You can't. You still love them. You still are emotionally tied to them. A thousand times a thousand. And if and when they walk away, all you have left is the lament of Jesus Oh, Jesse. "Oh Margaret, O oh, Steve, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, How I would have, but you were not willing. It's the lament of a parent grounded in love for her children who are unwilling to make good decisions. Maybe this is why Jesus used a hen brooding over her chicks for the symbol of his love for us, rather than something like maybe an eagle. You'd think it would be an eagle, Remember, when Jesus speaks in the gospel, he does so as the word of God. Jesus is the revelation of God. So what Jesus says he is like, that is what God is like. What Jesus says is what God would say. Jesus knew well the scriptures in Psalm 91. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide with the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. And the wings in the Old Testament generally are, of course, the wings of the eagle. For in Exodus it proclaims, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Or that famous passage in Isaiah 40, Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint, and under his wings you will find refuge. Why didn't he pick the eagle? Or in that song that we sing sometimes, mostly at funerals, the rumor's out that I'm going to sing it, and the rumor is true. This is why I do not sing in the choir. And he will raise you up on eagles' wings, bear you up on the breath of dawn, make you to shine like the sun, and hold you in the palm of his hand. I blew it. (laughs) You know what I'm singing. Why not an eagle? Why a mother hen? The eagle's so powerful. This hopeful image of God swooping down like an eagle, picking us up and swooshing us away to safety. Why didn't Jesus use it? Instead, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood. A mother hen. How many professional football teams that you know that are named a hen? There are the Delaware Blue Hens, a college team. There's the three, a AAA baseball team, the Toledo Mud Hens, but there's not one professional football team that would ever go to name themselves a hen. You have all the scary animals, bears and lions and tigers and jaguars. And you have all those other birds, eagles and hawks and blue jays and cardinals and falcons, but no mother hen. A mother hen who cannot fly more than five or six feet at one shoot. A mother hen whose only defense against predators is to tuck her brood underneath her wings and to put herself between the fox and her chicks. That's her only defense, to put herself between the fox and her chicks and to give herself up for her brood. Now, this isn't totally unprecedented in the Old Testament. In the first story of creation, when God hovers over the waters of creation, the Hebrew word for it is brooded. God brooded over the waters like a mother hen broods over her chicks. It's the powerful way of God's love for us, like that of a mother hen, that she does not coerce or overpower or force us, but gives us the freedom to crawl out from under her wings of love and to scatter even if the consequences are dire. This is the unconditional love of God, you see, till the end, giving us freedom to come and go, but still never giving up on us, never cutting the cord, always waiting for us like the prodigal son's father who hung on the porch railing waiting for his son to come home where he would find his way back unto the loving arms of that brood. When is a hen more powerful than an eagle? when she gives herself up for love's sake. It begs the question, what if we don't come back? Are we forever scattered into eternity? This is my guess, but I don't think so. As Jesus said in this text, on the third day, my work is finished. And on the third day, of course, is the day of his resurrection the resurrection power of God in Jesus Christ. And on that third day, Jesus' mission to love us until the end will be finished, and God's work to reconcile the whole world to himself will be finished as well. It will be finished on the third day. So I've got this thought. It's just my thought. Maybe Jesus' resurrected body is different than his crucified body. Maybe his crucified body was, in fact, like a mother hen, but his resurrected body transformed into an eagle on whose wings we will be swooped up and brought back into God's brood no matter how far away we have wandered. And if you think this is irrational optimism, so be it. The fact is, love is like that, Jesus didn't quit on us, and neither does God. Let us come forth with our lives and our labors.